If you would pray with me, God, we thank you for this opportunity uh, together, to gather together and to, to open your word, uh, to just see uh, the way you've revealed yourself to us. And so as we spend time in your word, as we look uh, to you, we look to this picture of, of exactly what you're like as we see Jesus, we see God in the flesh, and we see uh, the way you teach us to pray and what it looks like. I pray that you would just uh, remind us of our great need for you in all things. I uh, pray that we would see clearly uh, the ways that you love us and the ways that you're calling us into a deeper relationship with you. We pray that as we spend time in your word that you would be our teacher, uh, that the Holy Spirit would move in this place, that you would take all truth and uh, apply it to our hearts and our minds, that you would show us more clearly who you are. Uh, I pray that we leave here being uh, just overwhelmed with your great love for us, uh, that we would continue to change us uh, more and more into your image each and every day. We thank you, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, it's it's funny, I was thinking about uh, a very specific memory that I have when I was probably 16 or 17 years old, and it was funny to me in the sense of the things that you remember. Uh, but uh, I feel like I forget so many things, but certain things are, are real clear. And so I remember being like 16 and in a bookstore with my parents and begging them to buy me uh, a men's health magazine, uh, which I had never asked for a magazine like that before. And the reason I was asking for it is because Chris Mullen was on the cover of it. If you don't know who Chris Mullen is, uh, he is now a Hall of Famer. He was a basketball player. He played for Golden State Warriors. He was on the original dream team, the Olympic team that took professionals, and, and this was right around that time, but I was a big Chris Mullen fan, and here he is on the front of this magazine, and the reason I was begging my parents for it is because it said right under it, Chris Mullen shares with you uh, his workout and his, what he does and all his secrets or something like that. And as a huge basketball fan my whole life, and my life around that time was devoted probably more time to playing basketball than anything else, I was like, I have to have this magazine. I have to see what Chris Mullen does for his workout and what it looks like. And, and so my parents relented and they bought it and I went home and I read every page and it talked about his shooting drills and the way he lifted weights and the way he ran. And I started doing all these things that Chris Mullen did. Because here he was, like one of my favorite players and finally somebody was telling me how they did what they did. You know, at that time, remember, it was the dial-up internet maybe. It's not like I could go online and watch all the videos you can see today or learn those things. And so I was really excited about it. And uh, it, it was because I wanted to learn from somebody that was really good. Uh, I do the same thing years later uh, when I got out of school and went to school for architecture as my undergraduate. And I started to design houses. And so I would study architects that I liked and the way they did houses and the reasons they did them and why. Uh, I would do the same, same thing a couple years later when Joanna and I were first married because I started coaching basketball. So I'd go get books of guys that I really liked and the way their teams played. And I would study their plays and how they did it. And then even when I started to preach, and I, I still do that today, I go and I listen to pastors and teachers and preachers that uh, have similar convictions in the way they preach, and I break down the way they do it and all these different things. And it's because I want to learn from people that are good at what they do and these passions that you have. And it's always been that way. I've always thought that makes sense to go and to do that. And, and I say that, and I, I was reminded of that this week, because this morning what we're going to do is real simple. We're just going to look at a few snapshots as we continue in this series on prayer of how Jesus prays. Uh, that when we look at Jesus, we see, as Hebrews 1 tells us, uh, the exact imprint of the very nature of God. When we see Jesus, we see exactly what God is like. And when we look at Jesus, we see Jesus in perfect and constant communion with the Father in all things at all times. 
And so when we start to think about wanting to pray and the importance of prayer and what it looks like, it makes sense that we would look at Jesus and how he prays. And so the outline this morning is very simple in this. We're just going to look at these different snapshots. And I want us just to think about when Jesus prays. Uh, When you read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four books that kind of lay out Jesus' life for us, what you see is that Jesus prays a lot. Uh, Just in those four short books, you see quite a few times where it's pointing out to you how Jesus is praying in different times and what that looks like. And so we're going to jump around a little bit. It's not my normal. Uh, We usually do pick one passage and just work our way through it. But to get the big picture of this, we kind of need to to hop around to a couple of different places. And so we're going to start this morning when we think about when Jesus prays and how it helps teach us to pray. I want us to begin in Matthew chapter 4. And so if if you're following along in the Pew Bible, that's page 1009, Matthew chapter 4. Let me just set the scene for you as you're getting there. Uh, This is very, very early in Jesus' ministry. Uh, Jesus' public ministry uh, lasts right at about three years. Uh, We see one of the very first things that was recorded for us in the Gospels as he kind of comes onto the scene as John the Baptist turns and points, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world as Jesus comes and he starts to point to who Jesus is. Right after this, Jesus will be baptized by John the Baptist. Uh, It's kind of uh, the skies open up and God's voice speaks and says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. And there's this kind of anointing of showing who Jesus is and it's this public thing that happens. And then this text that we're looking at is the very next thing that happens. So right at the beginning, Jesus has kind of been introduced and that's really all that's happened. And then we go to Matthew chapter 4 and verse 1 and then it says, Jesus was led up by the spirit in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry and the tempter came to him. And so I'm going to just stop right there. As we're talking about prayer, and in my mind I'm conflicted. And I want to dig into every one of these passages. But because we're just focusing on prayer, we're going to leave the temptation of Jesus here. Jesus goes into the wilderness and as his ministry is beginning and he's beginning to undo uh, the work that uh, we have done, our sinfulness. He's, he's coming to live the perfect life that we haven't lived, to show us exactly what it looks like to trust God in all things. And the temptation is showing that. Jesus is, is undoing the work of Adam, Adam and Eve, the very first Adam that sinned and decided to define themselves by themselves rather than God. He's going to do the exact opposite in the temptation. But we're going to leave that this morning, and I just want us to think about what he does as the Spirit leads him out to get ready for this temptation. And it says he fasted for 40 days and for 40 nights, and he was hungry. You know, I used to read that passage uh, for a long time. It's the temptation. Part of that was the fact that he had to not eat for 40 days. That he had to go out there and he had to really wrestle with this, and this was really hard, and, and, he, and he couldn't eat, and, and none of that. And that was all part of the temptation. But as I've gotten older and as I've I've thought about that and I've put that in the the context of Scripture and what God tells us, what Jesus was doing as he went out there was preparing for what was about to come. He spent 40 days and 40 nights fasting and in prayer seeking the Father to prepare himself for these temptations. To prepare himself for his ministry that was about to come. He was getting ready for this. And so I want you to think about Uh, what Jesus was about to embark on and what he was about to do in his earthly ministry. He had in front of him that he was coming uh, to to save us, to save his good creation, 
to begin to take and step and, and do everything that we haven't done, to trust the Father in every way and in every situation and all things. And so he goes out and he spends this time in preparation for, for what is about to happen, not just right there in the temptation that we see in chapter 4, but in all of his life. In 40 days and 40 nights, he fasts. And so we said this very first week of this series, if you were here with us when we started in prayer, talked about the heart condition of a praying heart, uh, the, the way that we need to approach prayer. And what I said is we have to have an utter and complete dependence on the Father. That we need to understand that we need him in everything. And that is the heart that leads us to pray. And so I think of Jesus going out and for 40 days and for 40 nights not eating. Fasting. This idea of fasting which sometimes can be confusing to us when we read in the Bible. We're told that we're to fast. Jesus talks about it like it's a non-negotiable. When you fast, do it in this way. And so what's the heart of not eating for all these days and how does that work? And I think a big part of that is when we remove food, or, or it could be other things, but in this case we remove food, it suddenly alerts us to how needy we are. Uh, I don't know about you, but if I skip a meal, or, or two, <laughs> my stomach starts to growl, and your body starts to tell you, like, hey, we're hungry, you need to feed us, what's going on? Right? We immediately are aware of our neediness. I need to eat to have energy and to be able to do the things that I'm going to do. And fasting in that way very much kind of alerts us to our great need. And so 40 days of removing food as he seeks the Father and it's alerting him to his need for this constant communion and communication with the Father in all things. And so the first thing that you see Jesus here doing is in preparation for all that is about to happen, he stops and he devotes this time. 40 days of fasting, uh, of seeking the Father to prepare his heart for what's about to happen and to prepare himself for his ministry. And so I want to just ask this question as we go through when Jesus prays. And we start here with he prays in preparation. Do you pray in preparation for the things that you have in front of you? Is that a normal part of your life? That when I get up in the morning and I look at what I have to do in the day or, or however that works or what it looks like, am I stopping and seeking the Lord in all things before I go out and do them? Am I preparing in that way? Is that part of my preparation for my day? We do so off, often we do so many things without even thinking about it. We get up and take a shower and brush your teeth and do whatever, eat breakfast, grab coffee. And we do all those things in preparation for what we're about to do, but is prayer part of that? Are we preparing for the things that are to come. And so the first thing that we see Jesus do is preparation. He's preparing for what's about to happen. Secondly, if you turn to Luke chapter 5, we're going to look at those two passages that Dan read for us just a second ago. Luke chapter 5, it's on 1074 if you want to follow along in the Pew Bible. But let me just set the scene there. We're fast forwarding almost a year in Jesus' life and ministry. So his ministry is about three years. Uh, oftentimes we break this down if you think of just big movements of Jesus's life and what he's doing the first year sometimes they refer to as the year of obscurity in the sense of Jesus has just kind of come onto the scene and he begins to teach and preach and he's doing things and word is spreading slowly but a lot of people still don't know exactly who he is at the end of that first year beginning of the second year suddenly that changes not suddenly, but over time it's changing and, and it gets to a fervor at the beginning. And that whole second year oftentimes is referred to the year of popularity. Crowds are everywhere Jesus goes. 
people are pushing in and they want to see him and they want to touch him and they want to be healed. They want to hear his teaching and they want to be around him. And he's mobbed every place he goes. And then in the third year, it kind of changes to what we call the, uh, the year of opposition. Because what happens is the religious leaders start to get very ruffled by what he's saying and preaching and teaching. And they start to plot against how to get rid of him and what would happen. And so sometimes we say obscurity and then popularity and then this year of opposition. And so where we are in Luke chapter 5 is kind of the turn of year 1 to year 2. He's starting to get really popular. And there's lots of crowds and lots of people pressing in. And lots of people want to see and talk to him and be around him. And so in Luke chapter 5 and verse 15 it says, Now even more the report about him went abroad. Right? He's just healed this man of leprosy. That's the context there. And it says the reports are going out and people are saying it. And then it says, uh, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. And so you see in the midst of things being really, really busy, lots and lots of people wanting Jesus and his time and wanting to see him and talk to him and touch to him, hear him just everywhere he goes. But yet even in those moments, he withdraws on his own to pray. And so the second time I want you to consider when Jesus prays is he prays when things are really, really busy. We live in a culture, in a time where it feels like we're busy all the time. And part of it is because we're busy all the time. And part of the reason that we're busy all the time is we walk around with a little computer in our pocket that connects us to everyone and everything that we know. And we really struggle to turn it off. And what happens is is the lines get blurred between this is time at home and this is time at work and this is time with my friends. And it just all bleeds together. And suddenly it's in everything. And so we're pressed in on every side with demands of of work and, and friends and people and being reached. We're never out of reach. Pretty much everywhere you go. Uh, someone can still text you or call you or get. And so the demands of our time are there and we know them well. And I see this scene that Jesus, who came and was tempted in every way that we are yet without sin, he too knew what that was like. He didn't have a cell phone. He didn't have a laptop, but he had crowds everywhere he went. Pressing in, wanting to see him and wanting to talk to him, and wanting to spend time with one, and wanting to hear him. And what it says here in Luke chapter 5, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. That there was never a time in his life where he was too busy that he didn't have time to pray. That he didn't have time that I am going to get away with the Father alone and seek him in prayer. And so you see Jesus praying even in the most busiest of times. Even when things were really hectic. But not only that, if you, if you look closely at this passage and just think of all that's happening, maybe even step back and think about it from the disciples' standpoint that are following Jesus and that are with him. And what they're seeing and the excitement that's growing around him. And if you were to ask one of the disciples, how would you say things are going with following Jesus? I'm quite certain they all would have said, man, we are killing it. This is great, right? There's crowds everywhere. There's people everywhere we want to go. Tons of people want to hear, they're listening, they're all part of it. By every measurable, we would say it was very successful. Not only was he really busy, but things were going really great. And so I want you to think about this. In our lives, in my own life, when things are going really well, 
that's one of the easiest times not to pray. When I feel like I've got everything in order and it's pretty good and okay, then it's easy to slip into that, I'm good. Right? Because, as he said at the beginning, the, the heart that prays is the one that realizes I desperately need God in everything. And when I think I'm doing pretty well and I've got it together, it's easy for that to kind of slip to the side. I'm good. I got it. Or the same is true when we're really busy. I just don't have time for that. I got an early meeting and I got to be at this place and I got to do this and I got to pick my kids up and I got to go here and I got to do this. And you're like, well, when am I going to do that? And it's easy for us to slip into those types of rhythms. I don't have time to pray. I'm too busy. Or things are going really well and we go, yeah, thanks God. Thanks, it's good. And we can easily just keep going without stopping to pray. But it's a scary thing when we get into that type of thinking things are good right i've got it and i'm good and i don't need any i'm all right and then that starts to slip by the wayside it makes me think of luke chapter 17 maybe you know the story there's 10 lepers that come to jesus and they're crying out they're standing off to the side because they can't come close because they have leprosy they can't touch anyone they're they're outcasts and they cry out to jesus for him to heal them and he comes over and he heals these 10 lepers and says go wash and go go show the priest go to the temple Present yourself there. And then all of a sudden one comes back and praises him and says, is praising God and thanking him and saying we've been healed and all this stuff. And Jesus says, weren't there ten of you? He says, where's the other nine? And, and the answer is, this is the only one that came back. And the sad part is, is that's the deceitfulness of our heart. We cry out when things are needed, but when things are good, it's easy to forget. And so we see Jesus praying not only in preparation, not only when things are really busy, but when things are going really great. He's still making time in every single one of those. But then look at Luke chapter 6, verse 12. It says, In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. In verse 13, when day came, he called his disciples and he chose from them the twelve whom he named apostles. And so again, you see Jesus getting off alone. Here it says he would retreat and he'd get off and he'd pray all night. I want you to think about that. Just, just the practical nature of what that's like. When everywhere you go, you walk. You walk miles and miles Almost every day, in every place you go, you're surrounded by throngs of people that want your time and your attention and to speak. Yes, Jesus is fully God, but he's also fully man. And yet he sees that it's important enough that even in the midst of this busyness and the things that people are pressing in, that he would get away and pray all night. That he would seek the Father. But I want you to notice here the occasion in which he's doing so. Verse 13, it says, When day came, he called his disciples and chose from them the twelve whom he named apostles. Not only in preparation, not only when it's busy, not only when it's good, but when there's a big decision to be made. He gets away and spends all night in prayer and seeking the Father on the twelve apostles and who they would be as he's about to name them. And he spends all this time seeking God when there's a big decision Choosing the right ones and making sure that he's walking perfectly in accord with the Father's wishes in all things. I think if, if we went around the room and we were honest about our prayer life and what it looks like, uh, there's times that you would say, 
we had a big decision and we really sought the Lord and it was incredible to see what he does. I can think of that in my life at different times. I think when Joanna and I moved to South Carolina for her residency where I ended up going to seminary, we prayed about where we would live and where we would, how that would work and what it would look like. And God opened all these doors and placed us right where he wanted us to be. I think about when I started here at this church and felt like God was calling us here and going, I don't have a clue how to do any of this. And God graciously just kept meeting those needs as we sought him and as we prayed. And and I think we could go around the room and you could say the same, that there's been times when you're not sure what the decision looks like and you seek the Lord and he just opens doors and he makes it clear. I think the same is true that we probably could go around the room and talk about the times we didn't do that. And it didn't work out quite as great. And we thought, I got this, and I know exactly what to do. And we rush through, and then all of a sudden we go, "Ah, maybe that wasn't right. I I think of uh, in the book of Genesis, when God promises Abraham and Sarah, and he says, you're going to have a son. And I'm going to do this work. And they're like, we're 75 years old, and we've never had kids. And they're kind of laughing about it. And and he says, no, 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 you're going to have a son. And then time goes by, and they don't have a son. And so they decide that they're going to have a child with Hagar, the maidservant. And if you know that story, they do, and they have a baby, and it causes all kinds of relational issues, and there's all sorts of problems that happen and come from that. And I'm always struck in that passage, the the relationship that Abraham had with God and the way he walked with him and the way he talked with him, that nowhere in that passage does it say he stopped and he asked God. God, is this the way we're supposed to do this? Is this the plan? And they don't, and they go ahead, and it causes all sorts of issues. And God is still gracious, and he still works through them and in that. But how often when we have a big decision and a difficult thing that we get ahead of ourselves. But here you see Jesus retreating. And he spends all night in prayer seeking the Father before he goes and he calls the twelve apostles. Flip with me to Luke 22. We're going to look at two more snapshots here. We have Jesus prays when he's in preparation, when he's good, when things are good, when he's busy, when there's big decisions. But then if you look at Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 39, and so we've now jumped ahead. We're now to the night before Jesus will be crucified. He's just spent several hours with the disciples in the upper room teaching them. It's when he institutes the Lord's Supper. He's telling them all these things. I'm going to prepare a place for you. He prays for them. He goes through all this. And then they get up and they go out into the Garden of Gethsemane together. And it says, When he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and he prayed. Verse 42, he says, Father, If you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And so here Jesus is moments before he will go to the cross where he will be beaten and tortured and mocked and spit on. And he's seeking the Father in those moments. 
knowing what he's about to face. And if you read carefully and you look closely at what's happening here and what's being said, it's not even those things that Jesus is praying about. In verse 42 it says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And if we follow through in the Old Testament and we look at this idea of the cup of God and what it means and what it talks about, and we, we get a pretty good picture when we kind of take everything in the Bible and we take the Old Testament, we take the New Testament as it kind of looks back and explains what's happening here. But what Jesus is praying about, the cup of God is the cup of God's wrath. The holy, righteous anger of God against all sinfulness for all time. And in that moment, Jesus prays and he asks God, if it's possible, would you remove this cup from me? I think Paul helps us understand what exactly is happening there in 2 Corinthians 5 when he says, For he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we could become the righteousness of God in him. That the Father is going to allow Jesus to take on the sin of all those that would put their faith in him and then pour out his holy, righteous anger onto Jesus, directed at him in that moment. And Jesus is about to face this, and he knows he's about to face this, and he cries out, and he says, if there's another way, be a good time to tell me. If there's another way, Father, he asks. And we see Jesus' humanity. We see Jesus' realization that in that moment, this perfect relationship that he's always had with the Father is not going to be that in this moment. But then the next thing he says, Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And so we see Jesus praying in the greatest moment of fear and stress and anguish. And that's often, I think, when we pray. Usually when things press in and it gets really hard, then suddenly we go, God, help me. It's when our heart is re-alerted to the fact that we desperately need God in everything and we need Him. And so oftentimes, that's when we begin to pray. When things are so vividly outside of our control. But I want you to notice when He prays the way Jesus prays here. He says, Your will be done. And that is birthed out of an entire life of walking with the Father in every single thing all the way. It's only in speaking with Him and walking with the Father, hearing from Him in every single thing that in that moment He can say, Your will be done. I trust you in this. But we said the very first week, prayer is personal communication with God. It's growing in your relationship of talking to Him, of knowing Him intimately. And we know that by His Word and having that stand over us and then praying in response and, and walking with Him in all things. And as we do that and as we grow in that relationship and then those harder times come, we don't pray to our perfect Father as a magic genie and say, hey, fix all this and make it exactly like what I want. But we pray, Your will be done. I trust You even in this right now. Even when I don't understand exactly how this would work. And, and notice that Jesus says, if there's another way, there's nothing wrong with bringing those petitions and asking God and pleading with Him, but doing so trusting Him in all things. 
When we have cultivated that relationship with Him to that place where even when it is so difficult and even when things seem to be pressing in, that He trusts His Father. I vividly remember being, uh, it's funny, memory, <laughs> seven or eight years old uh, in the little town we lived in in Texas and there was a tornado, like in our town, like right over the hill kind of thing and standing on the front porch with my dad and it's really dark outside and really windy and people are calling on the landline because that's all we had with the big long squiggly thing and you'd listen and hey we just saw it over here right and I remember standing on the porch with him and thinking this is really scary and I said to my dad like what's good and my dad turned to me and said we're fine it's a few blocks away it's okay it's not coming this way we're good and I went Okay. Because dad said it was going to be okay. And he hadn't lied to me. He had never told me it's going to be okay and it wasn't okay. And because I talked to him every single day and he provided for my needs and he took care of me, I wasn't worried about it. And I think of that's what a life of personal communication with the father looks like. He says, if there's any way that you can remove this cup, that would be great. But not my will, yours be done. And as we begin to trust and talk and stay in perfect communication with the Father in all things, that's what it begins to look like. And so you see Jesus in preparation. You see when it's busy, when it's great, when there's big decisions, and when it's really stressed and it's really difficult. But there's one last one I want you to see, and it's the next chapter, Luke 23, in verse 33. As Jesus is being led to the cross, and he's now going to be crucified, the greatest injustice in the history of the world, the only perfect man, is now killed And in verse 32, it says, Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, they were crucified. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. And they cast lots to divide his garments. Verse 44, it says, It was now the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. And when the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. And I want you just to think about that scene for a second, in which Jesus is being brutally murdered for something he didn't do, And his prayer is not for himself, and it's not for his deliverance, but he's praying for those who are inflicting the pain. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And then when it says darkness from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, is God pours out his wrath on Jesus for your sin and mine. Not for what he deserved, but for what we deserve. And he gets to the end, and then he says, Father, I know. Commit my spirit into your hands. If you read in John's gospel, it says, he says, it is finished. And then he says, I commit my hands. I commit myself to you. 
And he's showing us that all of this he has chosen to do. And it's because he's in constant communion with the Father. And he knows exactly that this was the plan. And exactly what he's come to accomplish. And he willingly lays down his life. And he shows us in the most difficult times when we are wronged how to pray. It's the same thing he says when he teaches us to pray. Forgive others as we're forgiven. We're to pray for forgiveness because that's the very heart of the gospel and what Jesus has come to do. And so when you look at his prayer life, you see he prays in preparation and the good and the bad when there's big decisions in pain and in agony and even in death. Maybe we could summarize his prayer life with what Paul says in First Thessalonians chapter 5. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. He prays without ceasing. And in all things, and in all ways, and at all times, he's in constant communication with the Father. And he does so because he understands that it's central to all that God has called him to do. To make him known. To redeem his good creation. Every bit of it that he must be walking in perfect communication with the Father all along the way. And so two things as we end that I want you to consider. Jesus clearly saw he couldn't do what he was called to do without constant communication with the Father. What makes us think that we can do without doing that? So the first week, we talk about prayer. Everything we want to be and see and do as believers and as a church, as disciples, we cannot do it apart from constant communication with the Father. Jesus models this perfectly for us in all things. He prays without ceasing in every instance, in every way, all the time. We need complete and total dependence on Him in everything. But the second thing I want you to consider is that none of us have measured up to this perfect example that we see. But thankfully and wonderfully, Jesus didn't just come to be the perfect example, although he is the perfect example. He comes to do for us what we haven't done. And he does it perfectly and completely and totally in every way. He's come to do for us so that we can have perfect communion with the Father. That we can come to Him in all things, at all times. And He's purchased that through His perfect life, His sinless life, His atoning death, and His glorious resurrection. And so we're reminded when we look at this image of Jesus in His prayer life that we don't measure up. But the good news is you're not saved by how perfect your prayer life, but you are saved by Jesus and what he's done. And so I want you to think about this as we end. We need to be reminded of this, that it's not us, but it's what Christ has done. But make the connection now to prayer. That's what prayer is. It helps us to reinforce and deepen the reality of our need. That we haven't done it and that we desperately need him. And they go together. And as we continue to pray and as we continue to seek Him, the Holy Spirit comes and reminds us that we haven't done it. It convicts us of sin, but then points us to Jesus and says, He has done it. 
And it draws us into deeper and greater intimacy with our Father because of what Jesus has done. So we must pray. So pray with me. God, we thank you for the glorious good news of what you've done for us. I thank you that you give us this perfect uh, image of what it means to pray in all things. I pray that we would continue to seek you in every circumstance. I pray that you would remind us, uh, even this day, to pray in preparation, to pray in the things that are in front of us, that we would pray for your guidance and your leading, that we pray that we would have your heart to those around us. We pray that you would open our eyes to see and love people the way that you have loved us. I pray that we'd pray in decisions that we have, that we would pray, uh, we would rejoice in good times, that we would together come and encourage one another and pray for needs that we have. I pray that we would do this in, in every moment, in every instance, in every way, that we would see you more clearly in your great grace and love for us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.